2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series about cauldrons. That's right. In the last episode, we talked about cauldrons, uh, and mostly an introduction uh, to the idea of the cauldron as both a, a mundane tool for heating water and making soup, but also getting in a, a little bit to the idea that, okay, this is something that also ends up taking on sacred and supernatural uh, characteristics in various traditions. Um, but for the most part, we, we talked about uh, soup technology, which in and of itself is pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, we pondered the uh, the,
0: the foggy, distant uh, prehistory of salmon soups in Japan.
1: yeah. So a lot of this episode uh, is going to look at the cauldron in Chinese traditions and in uh, Chinese history and mythology. So in Chinese culture and history, the ancient cauldron is known as the ding, a cooking cauldron with two looped handles and three or four legs. The three-legged ones tend to have a more of a circular pot, while the four-legged ones tend to have a rectangular pot and appear more like what we might think of as a chest or something in Western traditions. It's maybe a little less recognizable as a cauldron if you're basing your expectations just on cauldrons in Western traditions.
0: Yeah, it, it made me wonder, like, wait a minute, why are pots always round? I mean, they don't have to be. So this is a, a pot that's, that's got corners, and it looks like something that Link would pop open and pull a treasure out of. Oh, it's the hookshot. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, these are ultimately uh, artifacts that have a number of supernatural uh, associations with them. Uh, But uh, in terms of of actual... Chinese cauldrons or, or ding that have survived. Uh, for instance, one example of, of, uh, that, uh, that, that came up in my research is from the Warring States period around, uh, this is from around 433 BCE, uh, found in the uh, Ligodun tombs in central China. Upon its discovery, it still had ox bones inside it and soot on its base, meaning that it was apparently used for cooking, perhaps as part of a funerary feast. Uh, it was made of bronze and also included lifting hooks and a ladle. Lifting hooks—does that mean something? You would like put some some hooks in to move it out of the fire? Correct. Uh, in in this in this case, now when we get into um, later discussions of. Um, of cauldrons, you also get uh, into the idea of flesh hooks for your cauldron that have to do with uh, you know, obviously for the manipulating of flesh, uh, you know, some sort of meat that you're cooking inside of said cauldron. But these, I believe, yeah, were just to to move the cauldron around while it was heated.
0: Okay, so a cauldron we know can be used for the the chores that sustain everyday life, cooking food and washing and so forth. But in Chinese traditions, cauldrons. Have a a much more culturally and religiously charged significance, even though they could be used for those same mundane tasks. They might
1: also decide the very fate of your existence. That's right, and and uh, and and I do want to stress that a lot of this will also end up lining up with traditions in the West as well. That we'll get into much later, but but yeah, this this thing that, for all intents and purposes, is about you know heating water for soup or maybe for laundry or something like that, ends up taking on greater significance. So, in Chinese tradition, the ding became associated with power and land ownership, and it was used not only for food production and also for storage, it was also used to make sacrifices to the gods. And the
0: idea of gods here might also well include uh, ancestral spirits, right? There's sort of a a blurring of the distinction there that like appeasing one's ancestors was believed to play a role in uh, determining your fortune.
1: Right. Now, one of the sources I was looking to for, for this episode is an article titled Visions of Hell in Asia from 2018, published in the Journal uh, of the Oriental Society of Australia by scholar Paul Mirabalek. And in it, uh, the author writes, quote, In ancient China, the cauldron was the alchemical recipient par excellence for the sacrifices animals and humans required in order to transmute them into immortal creatures when mixed with certain minerals and metals. Now, I want to stress that he's he's talking very broadly here. This is not to imply that all of these various cauldrons, including the specific one I just mentioned, was used for anything like human sacrifice. Uh, but, of course, human sacrifice is something that one encounters uh, in the ancient traditions of, of of every human culture just about. So, uh, But, yeah, this idea that uh, we, we touched on very briefly in the last episode— that what is a cauldron? What is a cooking pot? But other than something that transforms one thing into another state. Right.
0: So it might transform a, say, a tough piece of game meat into a nutritious broth and a much more tender piece of meat. And it might transform uh, uh, various ingredients living and dead into a bunch of fumes, a pillar of smoke or a burnt offering that would be seen as pleasing to the gods or to one's ancestors.
1: Correct. Now, when it comes to the, the sacred ding, there is, a, uh, like we mentioned earlier, it, it also has this, this this prestige with it. It signifies power, and it can also signify a divine right of rule. And uh, in this, there's no greater example than the nine cauldrons of Yu the Great. Now, we've discussed Yu the Great before and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. As he is the legendary um, uh, ruler of the Shia dynasty of the second and third millennium BCE, uh, born uh, uh, from the the belly of his father's corpse, he's said to have quelled the great floods and established dynastic rule in China. Uh, His control of the flood is attributed uh, differently in different tales, uh, but I think we can summarize it as entailing the defeat of monsters, the possible Promethean theft of the sacred self-renewing soil from the gods, uh, the help of various gods, and also the use of dam and irrigation technology. Uh, So he's a a culture bearer, and uh, oh, he's also said to have measured the earth, and in some accounts he stands eight feet tall. But the other feat attributed to Yu the Great is that he also cast the nine cauldrons upon rising to power. As Yang, An, and Turner discuss in the Handbook of Chinese Mythology, quote, those cauldrons had the divine function to teach people to distinguish between faithfulness and treachery and to keep evils and demons from harming people so they were treated as national treasures. And I believe it's uh, that this story is
0: related to the idea that the cauldron itself is a a sort of symbol of power, both in a a literal and metaphorical sense, like that in the Mm. literal sense that you would have to be a rich and powerful person in ancient China to own one or more of these cauldrons. And also that the cauldron was kind of like a symbol of
1: someone's power or political dominance. Right, right. And in this case, there, there are nine of them because there were nine cauldrons for the nine provinces, but then nine also had um, cosmologically important uh, connections as well. Uh, there's also this tradition of saying that the, the nine cauldrons uh, sometimes are scattered and lost. And, uh, and it was um, said that whoever wished to claim imperial power and reign by the mandate of heaven would need to collect all these nine cauldrons.
0: Yeah, I think I recall reading somewhere that there's an expression means something like seeking after cauldrons or something that that mm-hmm. means like ambition for power.
1: Yeah, yeah, there uh, really, there are a number of different sayings in, uh, in, in in Chinese tradition that allude to cauldrons and uh, and make use of this motif. Uh, in the book, Chinese Mythology and Introduction, Anne Beryl adds that while you, the great, forged the vessels, they are said to have been cast by Fi Ling, the, the dragon god of wind. The cauldrons uh, could and would change weight and size or even vanish completely or reappear at will, quote, according to the virtue or decadence of the dynasty possessing them. Whoa. So, yeah, this gets pretty interesting. For instance, if a dynasty is virtuous, then the cauldrons would become so massive that they would be almost impossible to lift. It was said that when the, the Chao people overthrew the Shang, the Chao's virtue was such that it took 90,000 men to lift a single cauldron. But then when the uh, the Qin overthrew the Chao, one of the cauldrons just like immediately flew into the river. Oh, so the inanimate objects
0: have a will of their own. It's almost like the one ring, except exactly. I guess the, yeah. the, uh, the cauldrons are virtuous, whereas the ring is wicked.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also specifically noted that it is the weight uh, that is important, not the size. So, you, you might have a, a, a dynasty that is corrupt, uh, and the cauldrons might look enormous, but they weigh little. Uh, and mm. thus signifying that, uh, you know, that they're uh, morally impoverished. Uh, but then the, the the opposite is also true. You might have a noble dynasty, and the cauldrons are very small, but it would take like 90,000 men to lift a single one of them because such is the virtue of these rulers.
0: Oh, that, that resonates in a very pleasing way because you imagine like an evil dynasty having these giant cauldrons that are easily blown over by the wind. Like yeah. Big surface area and very little mass.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it works on on so many levels. Uh, They were said to have been cast in iron and also said to be illustrated with images of the gods and forged from metals offered up by the nine regional stewards. There is also discussion of them being important to distinguish malign creatures, which are sometimes translated as goblins and trolls. So, I'm not sure if that's meant to mean that the cauldrons also depicted these uh, quote-unquote adverse beings, uh, but because uh, uh, it doesn't seem like it's explicitly stated, but um, uh, at the very least, they had images of gods on them. Now, as for the use of cauldrons and sacrifice, uh, Ann Burrell includes a wonderful passage from the ancient text, the Book of Songs, or the, the, the classic of poetry. Uh, the passage in question is celebrating the agricultural culture hero and god, uh, Hu Ji, aka Lord Millet, Uh, Here is part of it, in translation, of course, describing the sacrifice. Our sacrifice, what is it like? Some pound, some bale, some sift, some tread. We wash it soaking, soaking wet. We steam it piping, piping hot. Then we plan with thoughtful care, gathering southern wood, offering rich fat. We take a ram to make the wayside sacrifice, roasting and broiling to usher in the new year. The bronze pots filled to the brim, the bronze pots and cauldrons. As soon as their aroma rises up, God on high enjoys it with pleasure. The rich fragrance is right and proper. For Hoji inaugurated the sacrifice. With no fault or blemish, his people have continued it to the present day.
0: I like the line on here about "as the aroma rises up, God on high enjoys it with pleasure." Because that uh, that is not unique to this poem or to uh, Chinese religious traditions. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a a common feature of many religions. Mentioning God enjoying God or gods enjoying the smell of a burning sacrifice.
1: Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of this that is uh, that is ultimately yeah uni- universal. Um, it's uh, it's fascinating.
2: with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
1: Now, for the second episode in a row, I'm going to also cite a children's book. <laughs> um, this is another uh, children's book. Uh, this one is titled Two of Everything. And Chinese-American author uh, Lily Toy Hong uh, wrote this. It's, it's fun. Uh, and she credits it as being based on a Chinese folk tale. Um, and I'd love to read another telling of it but I haven't been able to find find one I'm sure it's out there uh, but it does involve some sort of a magical pot or cauldron uh, in this story uh, which is which has some some wonderful illustrations an elderly couple uh, in in China and this has a historical setting by the way so it's not I don't think it's supposed to be like modern China uh, mm-hmm. but this elderly couple they they happen to happen upon this pot or this cauldron and they quickly find out that anything you Drop or place inside the cauldron comes out duplicated. So you can imagine how this story goes. You know, food, gold gets duplicated. And finally, somebody's going to fall in that cauldron. The old man falls in the cauldron. And now there are two old men. Uh, So the story ultimately ends on a happy note with the couple deciding, okay, we're going to put the pot away. We're not going to use it unless we absolutely have to. But by this point, they're living side by side with their own doppelgangers uh, who have a replica of everything that they have so i was looking around to try and find um, um another version of this story uh, and I, I, I was not able to but in the process i found another story that includes cauldrons as a as a key plot point that i think will transition into something else we're going to talk about in a bit it's mm-hmm. a it's a, a wonderful little story called the wizard's lesson this story uh, appeared in the uh, the book Chinese Fairy Tales and Fantasies, ed- edited and translated by Moss Roberts, a professor of East Asian Studies at NYU. Uh, the original title is Tu Chun, and it is included uh, in the, uh, the Su Suan Kuai Lu, an early 9th century CE collection compiled by Li Fuyin. Uh, though there seem to be some disagreements on the exact date of when this this uh, uh, original text was uh, was published or written, The story is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I think it and at times perplexing. I've seen some some online uh, like sort of blog style discussions where people are like, "What is this about?" Yeah. But um, uh, but it, but it has some some wonderful uh, wizardry in it. So basically, the story goes like this: We have this character Tu Zuchun and he's a scoundrel basically he's spent all his money he's burned all his friends and family members you know borrowing money and so forth so he finds himself on the street with nothing and then up comes an old man and ask him hey look there buddy how much money would it take to set you right like how many um, how many strands of coins will it take and Tuzu chun names a, a sum, and the old man just kind of scoffs and he's like, oh, You should probably go higher than that. And uh, he gives him another sum, and uh, the old man agrees. And he's, he gives him enough cash on the spot for a night's rest somewhere and says, Meet me tomorrow in the market and I'll give you the full amount. So this goes exactly as promised. And the next day, he receives his first millions from the old man like it's a it's a true fortune enough for him to have a a real you know proper start at rebuilding everything in his life and then some but you can imagine what happens next he Mm. immediately blows it all on a lavish lifestyle and before long he's back on the street again then here comes the old man approaches him again and this basically the same thing happens (laughs) once more only this time he squanders an even greater fortune the third time, however, the old man warns him that if an even greater fortune won't do the trick this time, then there's clearly no helping him. So finally, Tu Chun has a change of heart. He finally realizes, okay, who, this old man is, is, has been so kind and patient with me and just overly generous, and I've done nothing for him. Uh, he, he has this change of heart and realizes that he shouldn't be spending this all on himself. He should try and do some good in the world, and he, he, he tells the old man that he is going to do this. He's going to go help the widows and the orphans. Uh, he's going to make amends with family members, and, uh, and then at the end, he's going to meet up with the old man once more and do right by him as well. Oh, okay. So, you might expect this to be the end of the story. He's learned his lesson. But no, it keeps going. And I, 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 you know, this might be a situation where you have sort of combined stories, you know, that become one uh-huh. at some point. But um, what happens next is the old man, uh, he, he, you know, he goes out in the world, he does all the things he's going to do, and then he meets up with the old man again. The old man takes him up to the mountain to a splendid residence, uh, and inside— here's an alchemist furnace guarded by a white tiger and a black dragon. Uh, It's written that jade white fairy women stand by. And the old man is no longer dressed like like the old man that he met in the market those those, uh, three times. No, now he's dressed in yellow and scarlet robes. He's dressed as a Taoist wizard.
0: Oh, so immediately at this point, I'm like, Picturing him as played by Chin Ying Lam from the yeah. Mister Vampire movies.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I that would be a wonderful Stern uh, performance of this character. So uh, at this point, he presents Tu Zuchun with a beaker of wine and three white pills. He tells him to take the pills, and no matter what happens, no matter what he sees in the visions that are about to hit him, he must not speak. Okay. I'm going to read a quote from the story here. Take care not to speak, the wizard cautioned. Be it uh, revered spirit, vicious ghost, demon of hell, wild beast, hell itself, or even your own closest relatives bound and tormented in a thousand ways, nothing you see is truly real. It is essential that you neither speak nor make any movement. Remain calm and fearless, and you shall come to no harm. Never forget what I have said. With that, the wizard departed. Okay, so none of it's gonna be real. As long as you keep your mouth shut, you'll be all right. Right. And then the visions begin to hit him. So it's uh it's just kind of like one wave of visions after the other. So first a, a swarming army rides up on him and a ten foot tall general in armor that's just referred to as the general comes up on an armored horse and demands that he tell to identify himself. He remains quiet. The general leaves in a rage, and then the uh, and then uh, Tuzuchun is tormented by snakes and spiders and other beasts there's a there's he's harassed by storms this is the devil rides out this is the Christopher Lee is like uh, he's got him in the circle yeah yeah it's like instead uh, only this time it's the, the circle is silence he cannot right. break that silence Tuzuchun, i'd rather
0: see you dead than speak
1: <laughs> so after the storms the, the general returns and this time, he has his men place a great cauldron in front of Tuzuchun. And uh, in, in the story, it's written, The general returned, this time leading an ox-headed sergeant and his soldiers of hell, together with other weird-faced ghosts. They placed a huge cauldron of boiling water before Chun and closed in on him with spears, swords, and pitchforks. And so, at this point, they threaten him. They say, look, identify yourself or we're going to boil you alive. Uh, he doesn't speak. So then they drag his wife before him and they start beating her. And he still refuses to speak. So they chop her up into little pieces. And he still doesn't say anything. And finally, the general denounces him as a quote master of the black arts and has his soldiers behead him. Well, this got gory. Yeah, yeah. It gets it gets gory in a hurry. This story. Yeah, but
0: but we got to remember what was said at the beginning. The the Taoist wizard promised him none of this is going to be real. It's just
1: visions. Just don't say anything. Right. So then Tuzuchun's soul passes on and he uh, becomes and he comes before the king of the dead who identifies him he says hey you're that heretic and orders him cast into the hells quote Chun tasted the torments of hell to the fullest, molten bronze, the iron rod, pounding, grinding, the fire pit, the boiling cauldron, the hill of knives, the forest of swords. But he kept the wizard's words firmly in mind and bore the pain without letting a moan pass his lips. Then the torturers reported to the king that the punishments were completed. And at this point, the king of the dead says, okay, that's good. Uh, he can go on and be reincarnated now. Uh, let's have him reincarnated as a woman. And so he's born uh, again as a, a small female child. And now the female chun as an infant still doesn't cry out, uh, grows up a uh, mute, uh, marries, has a child herself at this point. And then her husband finally like, has an episode and, 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 accuse, and accuses her of being uh, improper by refusing to speak to him and murders their child before her. So oh. finally, after a life, and it's, yeah, it's, it's brutal, and after a lifetime of silence, now she finally breaks her vow and unleashes a cry of anguish. And at this point, the whole vision collapses. And once more, here's Tuzu Chun himself again, still seated in the wizard's pavilion with an empty wine flask in his hand, and the wizard's just cursing at him for failing. Uh, he tells him if you'd only remained silent a little longer, you would have been able to purify yourself of all your passions. You'd, you'd already purified yourself of all your passions except for love, and you blew it. And now you're not going to be immortal. <laughs> yeah, that is harsh. No, he already, he got killed. He had watched all his
0: people get killed. He got killed. He got sent to hell, tortured in hell, then lived a whole other life. But the, but the wizard is like, he just had to hold out a little bit longer. How was he supposed to know how
1: long it would be? Uh, yeah, he had no idea. He, he was just yeah. supposed to keep going. But supposedly he was close. Like this was the last test and he was not able, able to overcome it. Remember how this started with this guy like blowing all his money on parties? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is a it's a weird story. I want, what I may I may have to look into more to see if I can, uh, you know, grasp the uh, some of the, the the deeper meanings involved here. But on the the surface level, like coming back to cauldrons, it does feature cauldrons twice, and both of them in a very threatening manner. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that if you don't speak, I'm going to boil you alive, and then once you're in hell, you may be boiled as well. Ah, oh, well, this would not be the only vision of of uh,
0: hell or negative afterlife that involved boiling. And in fact, there are some famous boiling uh, puddles, ponds, and rivers in Dante's Inferno. Though mm-hmm. I don't recall there ever being a cauldron. Maybe there is. I, I think there are just various boiling
1: rivers and and, and puddles. Well, Paul Mirabile mentions this, I think this is a, a brief aside, uh, because, you know, I think for starters, the paper is mostly, mostly dealing with, uh, with Asian visions of hell, but mentions that there are certain saints who had visions of hell, and they might mention boiling, but they don't mention cauldrons. And part of that could be the legacy of sacred cauldrons in some of the European traditions, the pre-Christian European traditions that we'll discuss in the future. Like the idea being that if the cauldron is sacred, you would not find that in hell. Mm. And of course, that might you might well ask, well, what are you guys talking about? You just you've already talked about sacred cauldrons in Chinese traditions, and here they are popping up in Chinese hell. What's going on there? Well, I, I we'll get back to that, and uh, I think it'll ultimately wind up making sense.
0: But yeah, clearly, whatever its particular religious significance, I think it's also got to be highlighted in this story just because it's like a, a
1: horrific way to threaten somebody with death. Right. And, and you know, certainly when we start talking about weird uh, forms of um, capital punishment and execution, I mean, the, the line between that and human sacrifice uh, is often a bit blurred. Uh, you know, both spectacles are, are doing something beyond simply uh, killing an individual or burning a piece of meat, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And sometimes in history, they appear to have been sort of the same thing, that like Mm -hmm. some human sacrifice in history was clearly carried out on people who were
1: believed to have committed some kind of crime or people who were like prisoners of war. Right. And so death by boiling pops up many times in global tales and traditions, often often as a means of state execution for uh, all sorts of things like sorcerers, bandits, counterfeiters, poisoners and traitors. Uh, Some accounts may be legendary, but there are plenty of of very uh, believable historic cases of boiling executions. And it was practiced into the 16th century in France and Germany as a punishment for clipping coins. This is when you would scrape the edges off of coins and then melt those scrapings down to make new coins, a practice that was uh, finally defeated by milling the edges of coins.
0: Yeah, several of the main examples I found of actual use of boiling Capital punishment by boiling took place in England in the 16th century, where it was apparently used as a uh, as a punishment for poisoning. There was famously a guy named Richard Rouse who made some porridge that uh, – they I think he was a cook – and he made some pois- uh, porridge that poisoned like a bishop and then just a bunch of other people who happened to eat it. And uh, at least a couple of people died, and he was put to death through a public boiling. It's pretty yeah.
1: gruesome very gruesome. It it's interesting like I guess with the, the, the with the with the, the clipping of coins there's sort of a hey if you you boil clippings from our money we'll boil you sort of a thing. Like you you melt money you get melted. I'm not sure exactly what the poisoning thing is except that like poisoning was just something they really wanted to to um uh, to to uh, to draw a line on, you know, and say look, this is really bad and therefore you get boiled if you do it.
0: Yeah, I can't prove this, but I I, I have a gut suspicion, and it's that poisoning is a type of crime that is especially horrifying to kings and mm. royal people.
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of thing they could imagine happening to them. Right. Don't mess with the king's money or the king's uh, food. Uh, both uh, must be uh, deterred in, in the strongest sense. Um, it's also interesting looking at the... The the European uh, use of boiling uh, executions because. You would see this tradition later on as, uh, you know, tales were being told of what, what is surely going on in various foreign parts of the world, be it Africa or Asia. Uh, you know, there would be these, especially in like sort of the pulp era, uh, this idea of, of boiling people is something that uh, the other does. Uh, oh, whereas yeah. history tells, um, I mean, certainly there are examples of boiling in various cultures, but, but clearly they, there was a, a long history of it occurring uh, in Europe as well. Oh,
0: yeah. Clearly, you can see that as uh, just part of a fiction that sort of exoticizes other parts of the world by imagining like horrific, horrific things that might happen there, probably without any evidential basis. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love,
2: There's joy in every journey.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. Now, t- turning briefly to Greek mythology, of course, we have to remember that uh, this is boiling uh, alive is the way that uh, the master artificer uh, Daedalus kills King Minos, uh, trapping him in a bath that boils him alive. Um, Clever, and it seems like the the, the very sort of revenge that uh, Daedalus would use uh, against his enemy. Oh, I didn't remember that part of the story. That's interesting. Yeah, I believe it is depicted in one of the the Jim Henson Greek storyteller episodes. They have, uh, I think, two oh, okay. different ones that involve Daedalus. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But back to to Eastern depictions of hell. So um, there, there's that line in Big Trouble in Little China. I believe it's from the uh, uh, the character Eddie, who says uh, the Chinese have a lot of hells. Uh, And indeed, you'll um, you'll find Eastern depictions of hell often will include generally 18 different um, uh, daiyu uh, or underworlds. And uh, the exact nature of these hells or underworlds vary from text to text. Uh, but each one has a different flavor. They're a different, like, this is where uh, you'll encounter the, 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 the hill of knives, uh, or this is the one where you'll encounter the boiling feces, that sort of thing. Several of them were listed in that um, passage I read earlier uh, from the, the, the story of the wizard's lesson.
0: And I actually don't know the answer here. Would these also, like in some of the, the classic Christian depictions of hell, have specific
1: tortures for people who's, depending on their characteristic sin— Yes, absolutely, and in case in this case the yeah the hell of, of oil cauldrons would be uh, reserved for thieves and a, a few other kind of related uh, transgressions. Uh, now at this point, I'd like to come back to that uh, Paul Moravelle article, "Visions of Asian Hell," in which he discusses Asian visions of hell at length. And as, as mentioned previously, he singles out the alchemical nature of cauldrons in Chinese traditions, which is it seems very key here. So on the mundane level. It is a piece of technology that allows us to transform the nature of various ingredients into food, and then on the sacred level, it allows us to transform flesh into something befitting of a god. And so, Mirabile discusses examples of boiling cauldrons in the hells of Tibetan Buddhism, um, which, to remind everyone, it does center around the continuation of souls— Within the wheel of samsara, which is a you know karma-based system in which souls tumble through incarnations that may be human or animal, uh, but may also be incarnations such as you know hungry ghosts, heavenly and powerful devas, or in or indeed you might be reborn into the hell realms of Naraka. And the goal is ultimately, in the, the grand scheme of Buddhism, to remove oneself from this endless wheel and attain freedom from the cycle of death and rebirth, because that's the only way to just sort of win, I guess you would say. Like, if you keep playing the game of samsara, you're just going to pinball around, you know? So, you might you might ascend on high into the form of a, of, of a demigod, a deva, but then perhaps all that power and wrath that you have at your disposal, that ends up corrupting you and propels your soul back down into the hell realm. So the hells in this case, they're not really, it's not about permanent suffering, like you encounter in some interpretations of Western depictions of Christian hell, where it's like, well, you screwed up, you went with the wrong side, now you're in hell for, let's say, ever. Uh, No, in this case, hell is a place you are moving through. Your soul is moving through here and you'll uh, in all likelihood be re- uh, reincarnated uh, into a different incarnation in one of these other realms. Mm. So as Mirabile discusses, these visions often depicted in art, they already have this um, this, this, feel of transformation or purging to them. Um, so demonic beings might be cooking human souls, but to what end, right? We have to remember that cooking again is a transformation and the form of cooking in the cauldron of sacrifice is supernaturally so. Oh, interesting!
0: So I think I see the connection he's making here. The the same way you might uh, say uh, in in some Chinese traditions, use a ding or a cauldron to to make a burnt sacrifice um, to the gods in order to uh, to appease them to improve your fortune. In, for example, this buddhist vision of hell you may also be put into a cauldron yourself but in this in a similar way are transformed into
1: something potentially holier yes and this ends up being reflected in Taoist traditions as well uh which and Taoism is perhaps more concerned with transformation of the soul or self and immortality but it ends up being influenced by buddhism when buddhism uh enters into china from india roughly two thousand years ago Uh, And so, in considering images of cauldrons in hell in the Chinese temple of Qinghuang in Linzashu in western China, Mirabile says, quote, In fact, we could interpret the Taoist hell as some enormous cauldron into which have been poured the ingredients necessary to permutate the present state of imperfect beings into their possible perfection by long and painstaking alchemical assimilations. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I really love that uh, that idea. And again, it comes back to again that question question you might ask: Well, if if they, if some Europeans were hesitant to take take a sort of divine um, legacy of the cauldron and then place it in depictions of hell, even if you're dealing sort of with different religious traditions, why would you see it in Chinese traditions? And I think it is because you have this different view of what. What hell is doing this idea that uh these depictions of torment are not about like uh in-game suffering they are about changing you into something else which is the purpose of the ding the purpose of the cauldron whether you're dealing with the process on earth or uh, something more celestial or indeed something in one of the hells and i should also point out yeah that you also see this this these visions of uh of hell outside of chinese traditions and, and outside of, uh, of Indian traditions, this also pops up in uh, Japanese views of, uh, of, of hell and so forth. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode then. Uh, but I'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, if you have additional things you'd like to add about uh, uh, Chinese traditions of, uh, of cauldrons, be they the you know the, the the nine cauldrons of You the Great, or or these various depictions of Taoist and Buddhist hell, uh, I'd love to hear from anyone out there. Uh, likewise, any any sort of pop culture and fiction related treatments of cauldrons that kind of match up with what we've discussed here today. Totally. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find those episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we publish our core episodes. Uh, Those are the main episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And then on Mondays, we do Listener Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form Monster Fact or Artifact episode. And on Fridays, uh, we, we cut loose, we put aside most serious concerns, and we just talk about a strange film.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at Contact at StuffToblowYourMind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com
3: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now for a limited time get more cedar point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just 49.99 get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long